0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. We have some great guests coming up later in the show. We also have a couple of members of my team in the studio with me, actually, is a special guest host today, Dr. Sarah Best. How are you going, Sarah?
1: Good morning, Shane. How are you? I'm
0: good. It's great to have you. And uh, Chris KP is on the line. He's self-quarantined. Good How are you? I'm good. Are you self quarantined? Just is it like a, an other problem, or is it like it's? Um, I, I've actually
2: in the space of um, in the space of 36 hours was a close contact yeah. with two different people. Yeah, because one's not enough, right? Um, so I thought, you know, rather than come in and, you know, let, rather than get passionate with the microphone, um, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and share the unwanted love with my, my triple-I colleagues, I thought I'd sit tight today.
0: Sounds good, mate. Thanks for doing that. And I should say, uh, now, Sarah, you're in for a particular reason because I have a, a real issue whenever, whenever we get into a situation where our show is not well gender-balanced, I get a bit um, – Nancy, <laughs> I don't like it. And this week, unfortunately, a number of my um, my colleagues who help, uh, you know, with the other side of, of that coin were unable to come in this weekend. And so I was kind of freaking out uh, yesterday. And you know, I don't I don't like having just all all males in the room. So and it shouldn't never happen. So thank, nice. thanks to you for responding to my thoughts at 7 a.m. <laughs> this morning on a Sunday. Really appreciate that. That of was uh, That was great. So uh, Sarah's going to be here for the whole show, folks. Um, She's been on the show many times before. Sarah's a researcher at the Walter and Lyons Hall Institute. Um, so, yeah. Chris, some news. Shall we start off with you, buddy? Sure.
2: Um, so I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't move past this uh, really nifty story about the moon. And uh, I, I recall, I think a month or so ago, you and I were talking about some researchers working with um, with lunar rocks mm. um, from, from way back, uh, you yeah, know, the collected way back, and then we just starting to do some work on them now. So this is a similar story, but um, from an entirely different angle. So as well as rocks, if you like, that came off the moon. In the Apollo missions, and in this case in particular Apollo 11, 12, and seventeen, i think they gathered lunar soil um and of course well, you know likewise they, they had to sort of let it sit for a while because of course at that time they're like well we don't know what this is bringing back we don't know anything about it it's brand new it's literally off the planet so they had to wait for a bit um and it's got to the point now where there's a bunch of, of researchers at the university of florida who are very keen to see if anything will actually grow in this soil can you put you know terrestrial plants and they them to grow um they had to Apply on more than one occasion for a, for a sample, um, which they eventually got. Because um, the thing is, uh, it was described actually in the in the article I was reading um, as the amount they they borrowed. I'm not sure if I want it back now. I, I feel like maybe they will. I feel like it's sort of shop soiled, so to speak. Now
0: well, <laughs> um, it, it depends what you're putting in it. You know, like if it's well, like, I guess like that movie, The Martian. They don't want well, <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm pretty sure they're not. I'm pretty sure they are not pretty sure they did not do that. It wasn't
2: very clear. <laughs> Good question. Um, so, the, well, so they they only got 12 grams, which you know, even by the standards of uh, you know, rooftop garden or, or um, uh, balcony garden, it's not much. Mm. Uh, and they and they had to make that work, and they did. They chose um, Arabidopsis, which is a very common research plant. It's been used for ages for lots of things. One of the advantages of it is that. I mean, scientists know it well, but it's good lines they can use. And also, they know its it's, um, it's whole genetic code's been sequenced, so they know exactly what they're dealing with. Uh, but basically, they have little, tiny, weeny bits of soil. They put seeds in. They added some nutrients. They added some water. They put it in the light. And they had a control sample as well, obviously, doing its own thing in, in Earth soil. Uh, and the answer, the basic answer is, yes, you can grow these plants in lunar soil. Mm. It's, of course, not 100% as simple as that. They also found that um, a lot of the plants that were growing in the, in the, in the moon dirt, if you will, um, in fact, the correct term for it is um, is uh, lunar regolith. Yeah. That's uh, called moon dirt for now. Um, but, uh, some of the plants growing in there were, were smaller. Quite a lot of them were smaller than their, um, their Earth-based control colleagues. Um, they were often more varied in size as well, and they grew a bit slower. They also found that at a genetic level, those plants were actually expressing genes that you would normally associate with, you know, high salt or um, high heavy metals. So, they were under stress, which makes some sense because, of course, you know, these plants, uh, you know, the soil rather is, is from somewhere that's really rather unusual. So, they, the plants haven't had to deal with it. Um, and there were differences between different kinds of soil. So, some of the soil they got was, from, was what they call more mature. It had been there for a lot longer being blasted by cosmic wind. Other bits were a bit newer. Um, The newer ones were a little better for plant growth. That's nice to know. But as a first step, um, you know, in the path of uh, of of, you know, can we grow plants on the moon? Which would be useful in terms of getting some oxygen, if you I guess. But specifically useful in terms of um, of growing you know food uh, for um, for other space trips. Then yeah, the answer is yes, and it looks reasonably positive. Hmm.
0: Interesting stuff. And of course, with one sixth of Earth's gravity, yeah, those sunflowers are going to be tall. (laughs) <laughs> very yes. Tall. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Thanks, Chris. Uh, it's good to know that soil is still being used. Um, yeah. From those – those you know, we've, we've heard a lot about that lately, and I think it's, it's it's interesting it's all happening at the moment. So no one's waiting for a fresh sample uh, in a few years' yeah, time. No, like, yeah, Like, no, no. we've got this old stuff. We'll use that. It's still good. It's still good. It's been <laughs> under vacuum, a lot of it. so Well, well kept, yeah. Yep, well kept. All righty. Sarah, you're going to tell us about corals.
1: Yeah, well, I want to bring you back down to, to Earth, to the aquatic <laughs> ecosystem. Um, there was a paper published in Science this week which was really interesting finding a common ingredient found in sunscreen actually has the opposite effect on coral as it does on our skin. So sunscreen, of course, absorbs UV light and protects our skin from damage. But a particular ingredient in sunscreen, oxobenzone, actually reacts in sea anemones and coral And it creates free radicals, which are terrible things in Mm. cells, which can damage DNA and are terribly um, damaging. So in um, sea anemones and coral, they actually take on oxybenzone and attach a sugar molecule to it, which makes it water soluble. And this allows these damaging impacts to happen in coral and not in our skin. Wow. And we'd previously known that oxybenzone was a damaging agent and that it impacted coral DNA and interfered with their endocrine system and deforms their larvae, such to the extent that some beaches actually have banned sunscreen that contain oxybenzones. Wow. Such as Hawaii as well. Hmm. But the experiment that these Stanford Uni scientists did was they actually took these sea anemones, plus or minus algae, and treated them with oxybenzone and light and found that all the sea anemones that received both oxybenzone and light died within 17 days. And they found that the majority of these complexes were found in the algae, the symbiotic Mm -hmm. algae. So they're actually protecting sea anemones and coral from this damaging impact. And this is really important because in the ecosystem, corals that are bleached or stressed by fluctuating temperatures, they lose their symbiotic algae. They lose that defense system. So, yeah, this is really important. Now there's a committee to review sunscreen chemicals in aquatic ecosystems. So it'll be really important to find out what are key ingredients that are good for our skin, but also good for the environment as well.
0: Indeed, and I think, um, I mean, the Cancer Council here has done such amazing work with regards to the production of sunscreens. I was just talking about this to my wife yesterday about how in Australia, you know, often one of the most commonly used sunscreens is, is the one from the, the Cancer Council, which we can trust, yeah. which we trust. It's not true for all countries where it's just commercial. You know, this is, real, this is really great. And so, you know, hopefully I'd love to see them sort of step up and, you know, continue to lead the way in terms of appropriate sunscreens yeah. because it's such a big deal. I mean, Australia's, you know not a good place in terms of skin cancers. No, we, so. we need
1: good sunscreen. Yeah, but we but need we corals. Also, Yeah, we also need our coral.
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh, not good. All right, thanks, Sarah. Now, uh, guys, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, I'm sure you've seen the news, but um, the – great data has been coming out from the event horizons program uh with regards to the black hole at the center of our galaxy some people probably remember that amazing photo of the young researcher looking at the first image of a black hole just a few years ago now and that was actually a black hole that's a long way away from us actually that was um uh what was it m87 which is a uh, far flung long way away but it's ginormous it was a huge black hole and if you think of our galaxy it's kind of either way harder to look at our own galaxy because you know you're kind of looking through the thing you know you've got to look through a lot of crap to to get to the area you want to look at and in our case in um, Sagittarius there is an object we think is there called Sagittarius A and if you have a look in that region you'll see some stuff that's orbiting that location and orbiting pretty fast and a bit weird because you know there's nothing there you can't see anything but of course what is there is, is a black hole now the black hole that's in the Milky way is nowhere near the size of the one m87 that we saw just a few years back it is about one thousandth actually of the size it's it's nowhere near as big and um so that uh, in terms of physical size if you want to think of it, it's kind of like the orbit of mercury you know around the sun so it's still you know big but uh, but not as big as the other one but this actually funnily enough it's small size made it very hard to do these measurements for a couple of reasons one is um, if you think about um, the sort of, sort of the, the orbital mechanics of these things, um, the, the hot gases and, sort of, and so forth that spiral around and eventually cross the event horizon and go into the black hole, um, these things travel at very high speeds. And they're travelling at similar speeds, basically, for both the small black hole in our galaxy but the big one that we saw a couple of years ago. Now, if you think of what we're looking at, we're looking at these things. This is what we can see, these orbiting bits of, of hot stuff, And what you want is for that stuff to stay still for a bit while you take a photo. Now, these images are taken over days, not minutes. Now, with the M87 black hole, it takes weeks for that stuff to orbit the black hole. But with our little one, our tiny one, which is still ginormous, I should say, at the center of our galaxy, it takes minutes. And so what the team had to do was essentially take the, the sort of various images they were they were sort of data they were bringing in, kind of give an average look at it because um, otherwise you're, you're getting a snapshot that's too dim you wouldn't be able to see anything. So they had to sort of add them all together and and give us an idea. But it looks remarkably like the other black hole. It, it matches the the modelling almost perfectly. Um, you know, there's in, in, incredible sort of scenario here where we're actually you know, seeing the effects right on the edge of these black holes and what that looks like. And believe it or not, it all lines up exactly with Einstein's theory of general relativity. Big thumbs up to Einstein yet again. So there you go, Chris. Um, more uh, black hole data.
2: Yeah, I, lo- I just love the idea. There's something wonderfully humbling about the fact that there's a massive great black hole, you know. It's a long way away, but it's our solar system, Right.
0: Our because galaxy, not, our
2: galaxy. Our galaxy, sorry. It's, um, it's, not, it's not way out there. It's, yeah, yeah. It's thankfully, thankfully, not in our I just, solar
0: system. Well,
2: I, not as far as we know, but, you know, they can
0: emerge, right? I don't know. Uh, this one, I mean, it's, it's a good question, though. This one is 27,000 light years away from Earth. So even the, the data we're seeing is 27,000 years old mm. um, because that's how long it takes to get to us, which is Wow, cool. that's,
2: that's one of my favorite things about, about uh Science completely is that almost everything you find out, everything you see, and therefore base your conclusions on is old data. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's yeah. all you got, right? You know.
0: Yeah, and the further you look, the further you look back in time, which is quite, um, yeah, quite normal. I and mean, even, um, even things in their own solar system take minutes for us to see the light from mm. those, which is, which is kind of freaky. But, um, but space is vast. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Anyway, folks, we're going to take a break for some music in a second, and then we'll be be back with our first guest for today. Uh, That'll be Dick Williams. We're going to be talking um, to a plant ecologist about feral horses and what's going on in the Alpine regions, which um, I should point out, someone, a dedicated listener to this show, asked me to do this about five years ago here you go uh, <laughs> sorry it took so long um but you know i do take a little note somewhere and anyway we set this one up so hang in there folks here's some music we'll be back in just a minute Triple yeah you are listening triple r folks we do have our guest on the line now a little bit a uh, couple of little things there dick williams is an adjunct professor he is at the research institute for environmental livelihoods at charles darwin university dick uh, can you hear us yeah, I can. G'day, Shane. G'day, Chris. G'day, Sarah. G'day, listeners. Thanks so much for coming online, Dick. Now, about uh, five years ago, I promised someone I'd get, uh, I'd get a guest on to talk about the Australian Alps and what some of the situations going on there with the um, horses, feral horses, were all about. It's taken me a while, but we're finally chatting. Give us a bit of a rundown on, on what the situation is. About how many um, horses do we have in these regions?
3: Yeah, better late than never, I guess, Shane. In that five years, I've retired. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but still, um, well, uh, as many of your guests would know, the Australian Alps are a very small proportion of the Australian uh, landscape. You know, less than one percent. Uh, huge importance for biodiversity and for water and for conservation. And at present, we've got um, somewhere between four and five thousand head, something like that, in the Victorian Alps, and another maybe ten to fifteen thousand head in the New South Wales Alps. Mm. And so these these are massive numbers, and it's a it's a real problem. And to put that into some sort of context, when cattle grazing finished uh, in the Victorian uh Alpine national park in 2005 there was something like three and a half thousand head of cattle yeah. so a horse is about the same as a cow in that uh, it's about 500 kilograms needs about 10 kilos of dry matter a day to you know stay stay in touch with uh, life and about 40 liters of water so you know we're, we're sort of back to square one in one sense by having a whole lot of livestock back up in the high country and we know from the best part of a century's worth of research, that that's bad news for the high country.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I understand from what you sent through to me is that um, with all that background, like that hundred years of knowledge, you can be pretty good at predicting what the impact will be. I'm assuming.
3: Absolutely, and this is the the, the great value of you know science in general, uh, environmental science in particular, and that aspect of or branch of environmental science that deals with long-term ecological research Um, so you know I've been involved in researching aspects of alpine plant ecology, long-term vegetation dynamics, how things change for about 40-45 years and there was another you know um, 30 or 40 years of uh, high quality in-depth research before me so, you know, as you say, we've had a succession of, uh, of of folks working on how the Alps work. And so, therefore, and we know uh, quite a lot about, uh, you know, domestic livestock, how they work as well. It's mm. Agricultural Science 101. You put the, you put the two together um, and, you know, you can understand things like uh, selective grazing, the need for water, uh, the preferred habitats and the long-term impacts. And most importantly the time it takes to recover once some of these landscapes have been uh, have been damaged mm. so yeah the the long term history of looking at sheep and cattle in the australian high country has provided a very good platform for us to understand exactly uh, what uh, what horses and, and and another emerging problem is feral deer are going yeah. to do to these uh, very special landscapes
0: and whenever I think about the sort of um, our ecology and how all this plays together, you know, usually when we talk about various animals and so forth, there's a there's a predator-prey relationship somewhere in there. What, what does that look like for horses? Do they do they have a predator in in the Australian landscape? Um, are they are they a predator themselves? What, what does that look like? Well, they're, they're not
3: predators as such, but they're you know they're the top of the food chain mm-hmm. grazers. Um, you know, they might get knocked about a bit. Uh, the young ones might get knocked about a bit by, you know, the odd uh, the odd fox. Um, there's an emerging thought about trying to reintroduce dingoes mm. as a as an apex predator. But at the moment, I mean, there is no predator apart from us. Yeah. So there's really nothing to control uh, the rate of population increase. And so that's another thing to bear in mind about these uh, these feral animals. There, there's not only large numbers of, of them, but mm. there is large numbers of them because their reproductive rate is so high, it's somewhere between 10, 15, maybe even 20% per annum. So that means the populations are doubling um, every four or five years. Yeah. And so staying on top of that, the only predator that works um, is... Is a lethal human.
4: Yeah,
0: and I assume that um, you know if we think just about food supplies, water supplies, all those things. But by the time that kind of gets their population in check, I assume that would be affecting a lot of other species quite substantially, and we never want to get to that point.
3: Yes, and that's right. And and part of the problem is that it's even if there's no direct uh, threat to an individual fauna or plant species. Uh, and it's, there's probably direct threats to, to, to several plants that are uh, rare as rocking horse poo, but uh, you know, to, to other an, to other animals, it's not a direct threat. It's an indirect threat through through change in uh, in, in habitat. And um, uh, one of the examples of that is the broad tooth rat, which you know, it requires nice, complicated, big, tall tussocky tussocky grassland. If that gets mowed down. To something like a suburban lawn, which is uh, possible under heavy grazing from livestock, then its habitat's gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you keep doing that, then it's a, it's a it's a th- it's a continuing and real threat, a real and present danger uh, to something like the broad tooth rat. So uh, that's the sort of problem that we're having to try to face up to and manage mm. um, because of these uh, wide indirect f- threats on rare and endangered bits. Of you know, Australia's
0: integrity and history. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of you know control here, I, I can imagine this as a very sensitive issue. I mean, I, you know, like probably most people my age was brought up watching the Man from Snowy River, and the entirety of my knowledge of this comes from that film. You know, like I mean, we we just really don't educate people well in this area about this problem. What what are we looking at in terms of solutions, and you know how how sort of amicable are they with the, with the populace?
3: Well, this, this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of social licence to act uh, and to, you know, change the way we do things. And this is, a, I'm not dismissing this as uh, uh, something that's unimportant. It's, it's very, very important. But um, uh, the waters are sort of muddied to my way of thinking, by man from Snowy River type business. Mm because there's this romance that's associated with the animal itself. Um, and there's a you know, section of the population that want to see the horses preserved in that landscape because you know they get a mention in the man from Snowy River. Um, so the question then simply becomes, well, how many and where uh, to, to preserve that sort of cultural memory? Can we do it somewhere outside of the conservation estate? Uh, to meet both objectives. And to my way of thinking, it's quite straightforward. You can, but you just don't do it in national parks, Um, which is the last sort of vestige of uh, of biodiversity biodiversity conservation we have. So we have to look at the hard-nosed solutions of lethal control. And in many respects, that's probably the most humane way to go anyway, because if you let populations grow unchecked, Um, and, you know, the next big drought, there is going to be severe and uh, appalling death of both adults and and, and young horses that, you know, nobody really wants to see. So it's, in one sense, a wicked problem, um, but uh, I guess lethal control is the worst solution that we've got, except for all the others that have been tried from time to time as Churchill might have said about democracy. Mm. So we you know we, we it's it's a, it's a wicked problem um but you know the science helps here by telling us what is the most cost effective way um and also uh, to, to, to 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 manage a problem but also science is very important in telling us what values are at stake. So in many respects there's plenty of places to have a wild horse population to preserve the memory of the man from Snowy River, as it it were, but uh, there's not plenty of places to have a a functional Alpine National Park.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things that science also tells us there, Dick, is that uh, the cost is not just in in dollars, the cost is in other species and plants and, and various things that... We will lose if we don't manage this in a way that's it's reasonable, and and it may be that the solutions aren't overly palatable, but they may become necessary if we're to, you know, as you say, save some of those other species that are under threat as a result of the the damage being caused. Dick, Dick thanks so you, much you, for you, sorry. You've nailed, yeah, you've nailed it, Shane. That is
3: absolutely nailed. Yeah.
0: Thanks so much for chatting to us today and for helping, no helping me fulfill a, a five-year uh, promise to uh, one of our listeners. Um, I'm sure we'll be covering this again in the future. I mean, hearing those numbers of how quickly that population doubles, you know, four or five years is not long at all, and that is a very significant problem. So um, good luck with uh, – I, I assume you're still doing stuff. I can't imagine you've just completely uh, checked out from, no. from the work, but uh, good no, luck with your cool. ongoing stuff, and thanks so much for chatting to us. Yeah, good on you. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. Folks, that was uh, adjunct professor um, Dick Williams, who is at the Research Institute for Environment and Livelihoods at Charles Darwin University. Now, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and when we come back, we will be speaking with our next guest, um, hopefully on the line promptly. Um, all good. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. On the line with us now is Tony Ronaldo. He is the principal climate action advisor in the climate action and resilience team, part of World Vision Australia. Welcome to the show, Tony.
5: Thanks, Shane. Great to be with you.
0: It's good to have you uh, on the line. This this interview came about because I know you have a, a biography that's, um, I think, uh, checking my timing, just come out recently.
5: That's correct. It arrived just two weeks ago, I think. Two weeks ago. It's
0: called uh, The Forest Underground, Hope for a Planet in Crisis. This is an unusual title, I suppose, in a way for a biography. Tell us a bit about this book.
5: Well, the, the title comes from the method of reforestation that we promote, where you're not actually planting trees. You're regenerating what's already there, usually from tree stumps. But often seeds and sometimes even bits of root that still they're still living, they still have the capacity to resprout. So that's where the under underground forest bit comes from. But it, it's really a, an autobiography uh, traces what, what was my motivation for going out to West Africa in the first place. Mm. The struggles that we had in using conventional approaches to reforestation and totally failing. And then the impacts. What? So what? Why? Why are we doing this? The impacts on livelihoods and environment. And then with with uh, our awareness now of climate change, what's the significance for climate change? So really, that that message of hope uh, embedded in the title is very real through throughout the book.
0: Yeah. Now, talk us through some of these processes that you've been using with regards to you know the. I guess the I won't say reforestation. Maybe that is the right term, but essentially repair of existing stuff that's there, um, and and where you've done this because you've you've done this in some quite extraordinary landscapes over over a period of of decades, where you know you've taken scenarios where I guess people sort of given up on on what that landscape looks like, and but rejuvenated it back into something lush and and viable.
5: Yes, well. This is the surprising thing. often very arid and very degraded lands. People have given up on them and either not coming back to do anything at all or using great expense and technology to try to restore it. The reality is, even in highly degraded landscapes, very often if we change our behaviour, nature itself can bound back. And, And so it's more a question of why isn't it? restoring itself, regenerating itself. And it's usually behaviours, continuous overgrazing, burning, ploughing every square inch of your land mm. and removing woody biomass. And so the the method is more about changing mindsets and attitudes towards this, what most people would think of as useless bush. So changing their attitudes, actually, this is your ally. If you work with nature you can have a better future for yourselves and your children. In many cases, it's, it's agricultural land. So we're not always talking about forest restoration. We're talking about creating agroforestry parklands, which, which are much, much more productive without the severe environmental degradation
0: yeah and uh, you know in terms of what you do there I, I assume a big part of this is just an educational program um you know where you're going out and showing people how to how to do this actual work i mean this is not you know use as a physics guy i can say this is not like rocket science stuff this is relatively simple it's you know we, we just don't normally do it that way so if we get people in the right mindset and we educate them then all of a sudden they can look after the environment a bit better is that right
5: you, you've nailed it, Shane. And, you know, they give me titles like The Forest Maker and The Tree Whisperer <laughs> and so on. But I surprise people when I say probably 95% of my time is involved in regreening mindscapes. And if I win this battle in the head, why, why do you think trees are such a nuisance? Why do you have such a negative attitude towards them? If, and if I can convince parents and communities that it's actually in your best interest. You'll have a better future for yourselves and your children by regenerating at least some of these trees. And the, the rest the rest is there. It's literally at your feet. Nature's mm. is, is bound. It's wanting to come back.
0: Yeah, and I suppose we see that, don't we? I mean, in the Australian landscape, we're, we're very used to this because we've seen so many scenarios of bushfire, and anyone who's driven through a, a recently sort of fired area notices just how rapidly nature wants to just come back with abundance. And I think there's a few examples, you know, I know up um, past Marysville in Victoria towards Lake Mountain, there's a few examples where the fire was so intense that I think even the soil bacteria is being killed off where you don't see that. But in most environments you do. You see that resurgence that happens very quickly.
5: Yes, yes. Fortunately, in, in the areas that I've worked in, in West Africa, just south of the Sahara Desert, people uh, don't have a lot of mechanisation. So the seeds are there, the stumps, and, and some of them, while I don't know exactly how old they are, they could be more than a century old, but they're just, just in this state, waiting, waiting for the chance to come up again, but being repressed every year, cut, burnt, ploughed.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Tony, just before you go, um, the book is called The Forest Underground, Hope for a Planet in Crisis. It's available now? Yes.
5: Yes. So uh, online, uh, Amazon and other major outlets and ISCAST. So ISCAST have it available. Excellent. Well, thanks so
0: much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the book. And and I assume you're still doing this ongoing work. Um, I think the, the more we reforest this place, the better off we'll all be.
5: Thank you so much, Shane. H- have a great day.
0: Thank you. Folks, that was Tony Ronaldo from World Vision Australia doing some really interesting work there with regards to reforestation. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, Chris KP will be telling us something uh, pretty interesting, I think. Triple ah. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. and we've got Chris KP back on the line. I think he's got a barking dog in the background. I'm not sure what you're going to do about that, pal. Oh, you could hear that. Oh, yeah. I
2: wasn't, yeah, I wasn't sure. You, I might. Oh, that's pretty annoying. Yes, they're uh, they're uh,
0: excitable. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, you <laughs> live, you live on a farm or something, don't you? You're a farmer. Farmer. I, I, do. I, a farmman. Yes, I do a Farm man <laughs> thank you
2: I, I do and i must say that you know even though it's annoying occasionally the dogs I, I think they i think i they express what i would like to express i'd love to be that excited and be able to just do it just scream it from the hilltops and it's just not acceptable socially i,
0: I thought that was why you, you know. were living on a farm so
2: <laughs> it certainly makes it easier shouting from the rooftop <laughs> yes indeed so what are you going to tell us about uh, look, I, I wanted to go back to it. It's an old story. And the reason I thought of this story, it's, it's an old bit of uh, important, I think, historical, or at least nice, historical Australian science. The reason I want to get back there is because a few months ago, I was talking to friends and they had zero knowledge of this. and okay. I'm like, okay, hang on, you need to know this. So, And the, the key character in this tale is a guy called Doug Waterhouse. And if you don't know of Doug, Doug worked in the – well, from the 30s, in fact. So going way back in the 1930s, he worked for what, for, um, what was then CSIR, which is the predecessor to CSIRO, the, um, the Council for Scientific Industrial Research. He, um, he was an entomologist. And he worked on, you know, he worked on, on sheep blowfly because that's a massive problem. If you get fly-blown sheep, it's nobody's friend. Um, uh, of course, all his work in on on flies got diverted to mosquitoes during the war because we had a whole lot of troops up in the in the tropics getting mm. bitten and getting malaria. So, yeah. uh, and he developed the formulation which was really good for keeping mozzies off. Uh, and he was quite famous amongst the armed forces. they were like, yeah, we love, Doug. we love this stuff because you know it. it, it you know, produce such relief. Anyway, um, he produced this, this formula that was really good and uh, he, he was, you know, he was able to show that it was it was effective against getters and indeed against flies um, with, a, with a bit of modification. So that's nice. Everybody knows about it. But of course, you know, everyone is in the scientific world, but they really know about it anywhere else. So then a bit of a, a, a lucky chance turns up. And the luckiest chance is ultimately that the Queen is coming to Australia in 1963. That's the good news. The bad news, at least for the Queen, is that she's coming between sort of, you know, February and March. And there is almost no worse time for flies. Yeah. <laughs> That's about – it's right in the fly zone, especially if you're not used to them. You know, if yeah. you're used to it, you can – you wave a hand, you grumble under your breath. Or like every other news story with anyone outdoors, you see, just let them crawl over your face and hope it doesn't get too annoying.
0: Well, I think, I think um, there's, a, there's an element there too where internationals uh, would look at our, you know, cork-strung hats. <laughs> And go, what the hell is wrong with those people? Until they come to Australia oh, yeah. in February,
2: and then oh, oh, this makes some sense. I have uh, <laughs> I have fond memories of going uh, going up north and going around in, in the territory and seeing tourists wearing full face masks, <laughs> of, uh, of, and and just thinking, yeah, the flies have won. <laughs> anyway, so so Doug gets on, you know, I don't know how person, those person, those person, and Doug Waterhouse gets in touch with one of the Queen's aides. And manages to give him to use this new formulation he's got on the queen because there's a garden party uh, in Canberra. Um, so you how need, good you this? need test subjects? Well, yes. I mean, he knows that it works, but it's good. It's good publicity, <laughs> and it's you know all that, jazz. But apparently it looks like the wimp at the very last minute wimped out and just didn't use it or use it at such a distance it wasn't going to be useful. So nothing happened. So Doug's a bit disappointed at this because he hasn't had a chance to show off his great new thing. But, of course, the Queen, I assume, was just attacked by flies and just dealt with it with her usual grace. I, I don't know what happened with the Queen. But the day after this happened, um, there was there was sort of a break in proceedings. There was a, like It was like a social day for the government house staff to hang out with some of the entourage, to hang out with some journalists. They went and played golf. And of course, the risk at that point is much lower. There's no royalty, right? They're totally happy to try out this reasonably somewhat experimental new formulation because they've seen what the flies are like at this point. So they try it out, and it works an absolute charm. They can hang around outside, play golf in the middle of fly season, and it's bearable. So of course, <laughs> that is that's great because A, they all know it works, and B, part of the they story are journalists. And journalists love a story, especially if it's one that they've felt, like, I would suggest emotionally. If you've been attacked by flies and then they go away, you feel that, if I could put it that way.
0: Mm, mm.
2: So, it's almost better than the Queen, I reckon. The Queen is just someone important who would go, yay, I did this thing. But even the Queen would require journalists or somebody to get the word on the street. She's not going to do it herself. She's hardly going to stand up at the Christmas address and say, you know, thanks, Doug. What? Um, <laughs> Although we don't him a bit if she did. Anyway, so the word then gets out on the street that you know there's this amazing new formulation that some bloke called Doug Waterhouse at CSAR has produced. It's in the papers, so general people, as opposed to researchers, that are picking up on this thing. And I believe I'm pretty sure my, my the image in my mind at least is on a Saturday morning, Doug's pottering about in the garden, and the phone rings. So he goes in and answers the phone, and it's somebody's never heard of at all from a uh, from a company called Mortine, hearing saying, Look, we heard that you had this new formula that's ran right on flies, you know, etc. Can you tell us about it? And to cut a long story short, Doug did. He's totally happy to go, Yeah, yeah, you bit of this, bit of that, don't know what, what the <laughs> oh, actual screen no. Yeah. <laughs> let me, <laughs> let
0: me me through. You, yeah, let me give you the whole formula for free.
2: Well he got, he pretty much <laughs> yeah. gave it away. And, and the thing yeah. is at the time I mean the thing is you got at the I mean the, the I in C S I R and in CSIRO it's about industry. So if the is gonna yeah. pick this thing up and use it, that's kind of good. Things have changed a bit since then in terms yeah. of how that goes on. But, yeah, ultimately he gave it away um, to these guys. And about a year later, Erregard was born. So mm-hmm. we got Erregard from Doug Waterhouse giving away the formula to something he'd been working on since, uh, I would say, World War Two. Uh, you know, 20 years later it becomes a thing. Uh, and I think that... Uh, I- at some point, shortly after that time, um, about Christmas time, which is also a good time to revise, uh, the the more teen folk sent Doug a dozen cans um, of this beer. So that's the payment. That's the entire payment. <laughs> 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 What's that about?
0: Twelve so, bucks? <laughs> I think
2: it's not oh, buck. heaven only knows. Yeah. So, so if you if, if you're enjoying life outdoors, uh, you know, or you've ever used um, area regard or we did, I would suggest a lot of those personal insect spray things. You can thank Doug Waterhouse. Having said that, the other thing he oversaw. And there's a fantastic photograph somewhere out there. I I don't have it on me, but it's a great photograph of him. And picture this. He's the head of the group, right? Like, he's important now. (laughs) And he's getting on a bit in life, so he's not a young man. There's this great photograph of a very stony-faced old man in a white coat rolling dung in his hands. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason that's there is because Doug Waterhouse also oversaw. He was the guy that signed off on the introduction of dung beetles to Australia. Right. Um, and if you've ever, again, if I mean, especially in, in, I guess, regional areas more than anywhere else, but generally speaking, if you've sat outdoors at a cafe, had a coffee, you know, and lunch and haven't been bombarded by flies, it's because of this guy and his teams. Because if you think about it, there were no large, um, you know, the largest animals we had feeding on grasslands and, and doing poo were kangaroos. We brought a whole lot more in. Sheep mm. and cows to a lot more of this and we did not have, the insect ecosystems to deal with that. So they, you can try and spray them out of existence. You can try and swat them out of existence. You can try and cope with them. None of which are particularly satisfying. Um, and it's a bit of a gamble to bring in a biological control. We know that that can go very wrong. But ultimately, they they were pretty confident, and it's turned out to be a really good thing because the dung beetles will you know gather the dung, bury it to some extent, um, and gets it out of the way. It gets it out of the air where the uh, where the flies will lay in it. So yeah, dung beetles and Ericaard are the, uh, at least to some extent are the, uh, are the, the work of Doug Waterhouse and his people. And I think we should all be grateful.
0: I think, uh, you know, we've all had those experiences where, you know, the fl- you just cannot get rid of them. You know, the flies are just all over you. I know one of the things that I found um, is, of course, the what I would call the, not just the flies, but the mosquitoes as well, that the late night attack, when if I ever get my telescope out, which happens every now and then, um, happened a bit during the lockdown, actually, but, um, you know, and you go outside and you can't see them, but you know it's happening. Yeah. You know what's happening. Yeah. And you know you'll regret it the following day if you do not take that's action.
2: The, oh, spot on. Because when you when you're lying in bed, you know, at, at night, and it's, and it's and the lights are all out, you can hear them. Oh yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean you, but you can hear. Yeah. But yeah, when you're yeah. outside, totally agree. You can't see them. There's too much going on. Um, yeah, and it's, and by the time you think about it, it's almost certainly too late. They've mauled yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And no. you're going to spend the rest of the night scratching your ankles.
0: Yeah, and I think I, I tend to, for me, it's, you know, because you, especially, you know, if you're doing astronomy, and people who do a little bit of this, amateur astronomy would do yeah. this. You, you often do it in the, you know, it's freezing cold, you know, which is fine. Um, so you, you're fairly covered up. But you still need to be out of type, <laughs> so you can't wear gloves, and I've never been able to sort of do that. so there's always something going on and and so I get them on the back of my hands, which is you know, oh. a shocker of a spot to get you know to get this sort of stuff so but um of course, you know it's uh, it's weird there's um you know there's a lot of products around, and some of them work, some yeah. of them don't, but um yeah. Good and I, I, I
2: don't. I've I've, not, I've no idea how effective, you know. And this is we're going back a long time now. This mm. is Fifty years ago, so yeah. more than that, sixty years ago. I've no idea how effective those formulae engines are, and whether they've changed or not. You would have. You'd think that the insects would have. There'd be a bit of you know evolutionary pressure now. That you'd think mm. uh, they would have learned. Maybe not. I don't know. I've, I haven't been an in- sex for years um so i'm uh, yeah <laughs> <under qualified laughs> to,
4: out of
0: touch. to
2: answer that yeah <laughs> yeah i'm a little out of touch but you think it would have would have changed a little bit i
0: guess yeah yeah that's good stuff
2: and if, and if you're a um if you're if you're a cattle or a sheep farmer, you'll know what it's like you to get a blind animal. That's nobody's friend either. No, so that's um, stuff. the dung beetles will help that out as well.
0: Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Chris KP. Now we've got about uh, eight or nine minutes left on the show, and uh, Sarah was good enough to come in and help me out today. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about her research because um, yeah, you're you're a bit of a superstar at the moment. You're doing pretty well.
1: Oh look, my Twitter feed's going off, so I must <laughs> be. Do- isn't that how you measure it these days?
0: I love that. My Twitter feed's going on. Well, I don't know. Were you really smutty or something on your Twitter feed? Because that could, you know, you just—I know you—you you put a lot of cat pictures up. That would—that would do it as well. Well, yeah. um, so Twitter is the new measure, is of, um, of good research. That's
1: what I hear. I was talking to my postdoc on Friday afternoon, and he said there was a thing called a Kardashian index. Oh, really? So if the number of Twitter followers and divided by the number of citations, yeah. And if your value is higher than five, you're more of a Kardashian.
0: (laughs) Now, we should pause the program while every researcher (laughs) does this calculation. Quick. (laughs) Um, So if your number is higher than five, you are like...
1: You have a lot more... Twitter stuff going on then you have citations and scientific impact
0: does that mean you're more like a kardashian than uh, a scientist or
1: i think that's the (laughs) implication
0: (laughs) because i'm thinking about like if i think about my citations it's a while back now since i've been actively publishing you know over a decade and if i was to divide that that's not going to come out well for me it might be
1: a kardashian
0: i'm more of a this is a disturbing This is a stupid. Yeah, you don't look like a Kardashian. Thanks, Chris. Worst of both worlds. I've got by the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not really working for me. Well, that's that's interesting. That's that's interesting. I suppose. I mean, you you must uh, have gone through this transformation though, where so many people now are sharing the results and doing that on social media in a way that you know my slightly older generation. Yeah, a little bit. Um, we, we never did that. Like, we didn't have that sort of access, you know. Like, the number of times I see people, you know, tweeting, here's my new paper, you know, go look at it. It seems to be the new way to, to distribute information.
1: And that's how we find all our information as well. Right. So, have a quick scroll of Twitter in the morning to find out what's <laughs> up on BioArchive and who's talking about which paper, which yeah. international scientist has liked what. That's how we get on top of it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Now, tell us a bit about your lab and and what you're up to. I mean, you've been on the show, I think, three times before, so some listeners may remember it. Um, Probably not, if they're like me. Um, What what are you up to?
1: Yeah, so I've just come out of a postdoc working on lung cancer and lung cancer metabolism and how metabolism therapy impacts immunotherapy and jumped into a lab head position at the Brain Cancer Centre um, where I'm working on identifying improved models to improve therapy for brain cancer patients.
0: Right. Wow. Now, I've got to stop you on metabolism therapy. This is not something I'm aware of. What, how is that different from immunotherapy and chemotherapy? And what's metabolism therapy?
1: So metabolism therapy is really just um, identifying a pathway that's upregulated in cancer cells compared to normal cells okay. and inhibiting that pathway.
0: Oh, okay. So and slowing them down.
1: Exactly, yeah. except that um, a lot of people do that in a dish and metabolism is a bit different in a dish and mm. you don't have your immune cells in a dish. And so what we found was we tested um, this uh, glutaminase inhibitor, uh, m- metabolic therapy, um, in preclinical models where we have an immune system and a microenvironment and tumours develop naturally in lung. And we found that the cancer metabolism Metabolism is really similar to the immune cell metabolism. Wow. And those immune cells called cytotoxic T cells, which are really capable of destroying the tumor, yeah. have a very similar metabolism. And out there in um, the clinical trial world at the moment, there's a combination of this glutaminase inhibitor with immunotherapy. So blocking a cancer metabolic pathway and enhancing T cells. And we found that if you put them together, Ooh, not good. our cytotoxic T-cells are really quite stunted and yeah. they can't deliver any anti-tumor impact. Yeah, wow. So it's a negative result. We managed to publish a negative study, but we think it's really important to get out there and really think about everything that's happening in the tumor microenvironment.
0: Yeah, and I think we're in that state at the moment where people are talking about these, and this is fantastic, but there are these multiple different types of therapy, you know, like there's immunotherapy, there's chemotherapies, there's excision therapies, there are um, you, know, the, the, you know, all these different things, and they they must interact with one another, and we, we, look, we know that chemotherapy affects the immune system quite substantially when, you know, this is one of the reasons why it's, you know, keep harping on about this, it. so important to lower the case numbers for, for COVID at the moment, because there's huge numbers of people mm-hmm. around the city who are, you know, just permanently in lockdown while the rest of us live our lives because their immune systems are shot while yeah. they're going through these treatments. And, you know, just understanding that interplay is, is so important because I, one of the things I, I, I it took a while to get my head around this, but the idea that our immune systems are killing cancer all the time. And when we when we talk about people having cancer, it's at the point where they're not doing that well. Is that? Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm right there, aren't I? Yeah. And yeah. I think
1: a common misconception is probably a lot of people have had cancer cells develop mm. in their bodies, yep. but they've never had a cancer because our immune system is so good at identifying those different types of yeah. cells and killing them before they create a problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things, I think I said this about 10 years ago, but, you know, the you know the future with immunotherapies is just extraordinary and you know that that to me if we can i mean the immune system is one of the complicated things on the on the planet you know like understanding it you know when it's attacking our own cells when it's doing that correctly when it's not doing that correctly how we enhance it how we get it to restart when it's not attacking cancer cells you know i mean there's a lot of complexity there so with just quickly with your the new center though with the brain cancer i mean what what's the the sort of core sort of thrust there because this is a huge problem
1: yes well um For brain cancer patients that have an incredibly poor survival Mm. and treatments that haven't changed in over three decades, patients that were being diagnosed with brain cancer in the 60s were given the same treatment options that they're given today. And we just think that that's absolutely reprehensible and we really need to increase the amount of research that's going into brain cancer and the amount of money that's going into brain cancer research. And we know that from other fields that if you increase the research dollars, increase the capacity of people and the numbers of people who are investigating a problem from lots of different angles we will start to identify those um, areas where we can improve treatment.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, fantastic. I have a million questions now, which we don't have time for, but Mm -hmm. you know, all the stuff around the blood-brain barrier and I know that makes it difficult to deliver drugs and, you know, so it's so much harder to treat Mm -hmm. and everything. You know, it's just you you can't get in there um, for a start. It's really hard to to get in there. But, look, it's um, it's great you guys are doing that. We're going to have you back on at some stage. We'll we'll talk about this more. But thanks so much for coming in today and saving me from having a dude-fest of a show, which I, uh, you know, Our, our general listeners will know that I I hate that. Um, I make sure that we have a, a lot of um, diversity on the show, and that's um, very important to Triple R. Sorry, Chris KP, but you're part of the problem. No, I know, I know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to try and fix it. <laughs> I don't think you can uh, thanks Chris thanks for the story and telling us all about the, that history there of um, AeroGarden you know I love the I love the commercial payment of 12, 12 cans I think that's um, yeah, yeah. you think uh, you you would hope that company might hear this and say you know what yep let's just throw a million bucks at that family for doing some good stuff for for the that'd world that'd be nice Yeah, you never know <laughs> alright um, Sarah Best thanks so much for being on the show with us it's great to see you again folks we're going to hand over in a minute to to the team from edit i think uh, i can see cam in the studio right next door to me ready to go you've been listening to einstein and GoGo. um we're going to be back again next week hopefully in a few weeks time we'll be speaking to uh brett sutton on our you know professor brett sutton our chief health officer um about covid we're working on that but sadly brett um, has COVID at the moment so he's recovering and uh, we'll be talking more and more about about all of those things as the year rolls on. Remember to take care, stay safe, wear a mask if you're inside and try and reduce the case numbers as much as possible. Um, I think we're back to the term flattening the curve. Uh, we really need to do this, especially for our teachers and our elderly and all of those at risk. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go Go. Chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of R's Einstein and Go Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.